In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. You've just had the vaccine. You've just had the jab. How was it? It was fine. Uh, it was uh, very exciting for the site. So I was the first one to get vaccinated. It was very exciting. I feel fine. It was just like any normal injection. It's fine. And the actual vaccine itself, it's in a tiny little bottle, isn't it? It is. They have to reconstitute it and they have to uh, throw it up in a syringe and uh, they give like a normal IM intramuscular injection. And now the elderly residents are having their vaccines and they're all doing quite well. Yes, uh, we had two people actually, two, res- two of our residents had it and they're quite happy and they f- they're feeling fine. I was just talking to them there and they're feeling happy about it that they got it and they're excited. And you're smiling. I can see a joy in your face. Absolutely, because uh, there is a hope now, because we been, we had this 10 months, 10, 11 months, it has been, like we were doing social distancing, we were doing everything right, but we weren't able to, we were only able to control this disease, but we were not able to eradicate this disease. So this is the hope now, we can eradicate after getting the, if everyone get the vaccine, hopefully we can eradicate this virus and we can get our lives back to normal. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you. Sarah Jane, how are you feeling? I'm feeling good, yeah. I'm d- delighted I've had my first, first shot of the vaccine. Relieved, grateful, happy, yeah. I'm having a chat with Eamon Hughes, a resident here at St Mary's Hospital. Eamon, you've just had the vaccine. How are you feeling? I'm feeling fine, no problems so far anyway. So it must be a relief? Yes, of course. Uh, anything that tries to stop the virus is good news. Congratulations and Happy New Year. Um, how did you find that the public health nurses and all your carers? Oh, sure, they're, they're all very nice. No problems. I'm looking forward to seeing my wife Rose and my daughters Shannon and Paula. I am a cabin man, yes. You can't get the cabin out of the man. Eamon Hughes, congratulations. One of the first to get the vaccine here in St. Mary's Hospital, Phoenix Park. Thank you very much. Henry McKean reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, while some of us are starting this year full of hope and vigour, others are silently experiencing depression. On Friday, Alistair Campbell spoke to Pat Kenny about his own battle with depression. Now, you tell of your own experience with, with two employers... Um, and you were working for a paper called the Today Paper, mid-80s. You'd left the Daily Mirror and the other employer you mentioned um, is Tony Blair, not your employer, but your boss, shall we say, and how their attitudes actually were understanding but also life-saving for you. They were. The first one, a guy called Richard Stott, he'd been my old boss at the Mirror, very angry that I'd left. Uh, warned me that I wasn't up to the job that I was being offered. I was being flattered into an overpromotion. I was in my 20s. I was being offered a you know, pretty senior executive position. I went off, I had a breakdown, ended up in hospital, and he was one of the first people to phone me. And the reason wasn't to say, I told you so. It was to offer me my old job back. And that was his way of saying, I told you so, but actually, if you come back here, I'm not going to define you by it. Um, and I wrote, I write in the piece also about my brother Donald, who I write about a lot. He had schizophrenia, and he had, he's dead now. But he had a, he held down the same job for 27 years at Glasgow University, because they didn't define him as a schizophrenic. They defined him as an employee who had schizophrenia. 
And then with Tony Blair, he knew about my breakdown. He knew about my drink problem. He knew that I still got depression. Uh, and his basic attitude was, he actually said, well, I'm not bothered if you're not bothered. And I said, well, what if I'm bothered? And he said, I'm still not bothered. And that was just a way of saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not defining you by it. And, and, and that's, that's, I think, what we have to do. That nurse that we talked about, the whisperer, she feels defined by her mental illness because of what she feels would be the attitude of her employer. Now, she may be wrong. I'd love to think she was wrong. And I, I said to her, I said, look, every experience I've had with employer, I've been lucky. It's been good. And she actually said, though, and it's a fair point. She said, listen, it's OK for you. You've probably got a bit of money in the bank. You're well established. You've got a platform. You know, I'm a nurse. I'm on a pretty small, low salary. I can't afford not to work. And, you know, it's a fair point. Now, you talk about your brother Donald and how he literally lost two decades of his life. Your father died at 82, Donald died at 62, been taking the prescribed medication most of the time for schizophrenia, and that the severity of that medication literally shortened his life. Absolutely, yeah. And, and I can remember when he was first diagnosed 40-odd years ago now, and I can remember we knew nothing about schizophrenia. I remember looking it up and reading everything I could find and going down to the library and reading all these books and research journals and all that stuff. And I can remember reading something that said that because of the nature of the antipsychotic medication, the side effects and the rest and the impact upon the rest of the body are such that it can take up to 20 years of somebody's life. And, I, you know, I remember at the time thinking, wow. But, you know, when it happens to you and, and Donald didn't, <clears throat> didn't, as it were, die of schizophrenia. He died because of uh, respiratory failure um, that may have happened anyway. It may have happened anyway. You know, he'd, he'd smoked in his youth and all that stuff. But, um, but as you say, my dad, who also had chest complaints, and I do as well, but he died at 82 and Donald died at 62. And, you know, I don't think there's any other illness in the world that we would say, if you knew that the medication was taking 20 years off your life, it'd be okay. You know, I've got, I never go anywhere without my asthma inhaler. Um, if we knew that that took 20 years off my life, I think you'd guarantee because there's enough people in positions of power in the world who've got asthma, that would not be allowed. We'd do something about it. Communicator and strategist Alistair Campbell from The Pat Kenny Show. Kira, have you any tips for children who maybe on Monday morning, Tuesday morning, you're just sensing that they're not interested in getting into the seesaw, doing this work online. They might miss their school. They will definitely miss their teacher. They'll miss their pals. And I guess it's the class engagement that keeps them interested. And when you're sitting at the kitchen table, possibly with a parent who's also working, how is the best way to encourage them to try and do a little bit of independent work? Yeah. Okay. So I would say look to what's happening um, nationwide at the moment uh, and look to the resources that have been made available uh, via uh, broadcasting means. So the RTE School Hub is available and uh, the CBB's uh, School Hub is also going live Monday morning. And if you can kind of set up your routine around accessing such resources, I think that that will really help the child kind of feel like they have a connection to other children because ultimately that's what the child is struggling with there. They're, so, they're struggling with the loss of social cohesion, friendship, and most importantly, play in their lives. So by kind of joining a wider audience, the child will feel like they're part of something and they're not quite so detached from mm. their peers. And I think that will help parents too, because 
you know, parents need support in this. This is an incredibly demanding time for everybody dealing with this, let alone layering parenting concerns into it. So I think look to the supports around. I would also say parents should look to social media and the supports that are available there. Um, there's some fantastic resources available online. If something isn't quite capt- uh, captivating a child's attention, look to see if you can source a resource or an activity online that might be more reflective of their interest. And suddenly then they might feel like their interests are being accounted for and they have, I suppose, more of an interest in involving themselves in the other activities that are being sent their way. Obviously, Kira, um, you know, broadband is an issue for lots of uh, people right around the country. Obviously, access to tablets and technology is a problem as well. Now, I, I know we were contacted by our school, you know, with the offer of if there wasn't a laptop at home to contact the school that they might be able to help. But I don't know if that would be on offer for all people. It will be a challenge if you don't have those resources look hugely challenging and the digital divide has always been with us but it has been brought into sharp focus just how underfunded this area is and we're now in a new space when we talk about funding this space it's not just about funding school um, school resources we now need to start looking at how we are resourcing our teachers and our pupils to work remotely as well device poverty is real and it's something that we are all in education extremely conscious of I would reach out to your school if you do have an issue with accessing the use of a tablet or whatever device you need to to access the schoolwork that's being distributed in online in an online format. And just remember as well, schools are all too willing to find alternative ways of contacting pupils and working with pupils. A humble, you know, telephone Mm -hmm. uh, can be very, very useful. I know a lot of schools are sending out letters and, and learning packs to homes. Don't be embarrassed. If you feel like you need to access the work in an alternative way, definitely reach out to your school. Some handy tips there from Kira Riley from News Talk Breakfast with Susan Kyo. It has to have been, I'm sure, Colleen, very just stressful, you know, while you knew the report was being carried out and, and conducted and the investigations and the details. And I, I imagine there must be a huge level of anticipation when you're, you're, you've been waiting for this week for so long to get the report and does the fact that details are leaked does that add to that stress and and that kind of anticipation or does it does it yes in the yes. grand scheme I of mean, things it triggers yeah it triggers a lot of emotions i mean when i when i first met with the commission of investigation i was only home back here came back home alone and i was here only a week when i met with them and i was terrified because when i when i showed up i didn't know what to expect and um they kind of, um, it was very formal and uh, there was no emotions other than probably mine. And, uh, you know, they just, it was almost like they didn't believe it. They were very just, you know, everything was just a question, a question, a question. And, uh, you know, but yeah, I was, I was terrified. So it was important um, because I knew I made a big step by doing that and um, being honest about what had happened and what happened when I was eventually sent to the States and um, coming back home. How long were you in the States, so, Colleen? Um, uh, I was in the States. I went there around age three, so I was 50 years. Okay. And did yeah. you always want to come back to Ireland? Always. I met my birth mom in 99, and that's when I knew, when I met her in 99, then I went back to the States, that I always knew there was a void. And uh, whether or not I was able to, meet my family or be a part of them, which it didn't happen. Um, I still wanted to come back home. 
What was it like when you met your mom? It was very, she was very um, traumatized. Um, I think everything, just meeting me was very much, um, it, it triggered a lot of things. Like I said, I was a secret. Her, even her husband didn't know about me up until basically maybe six months, maybe a year before we actually met. And uh, it was a secret that she kept inside. And it was because of the shame. Um, like I said, I think the rape, the way the nuns treated her, she was she was more traumatized about how she was treated in the um, in Sean Ross than anything. So it was very, it was hard for her. It was hard for me. But again, I didn't know what to expect. So did you get an opportunity to, I suppose, develop a relationship, Colleen, with her and, and with her family? Not at all. Not at all. I met her in 99 and I went back home and uh, we never spoke again. And then she died in 2009. Since that time, how how have you been doing? Well, I think um, for the most part, I've been doing pretty good. Like I said, I did end up in emergency housing, which I didn't realize the housing crisis here in Ireland. And, you know, I pretty much packed up my bags and just kind of did a like a 21 year old uh, backpacker and just decided I was coming home, you know. So I didn't do a lot of um, research and um but it's still, I, I have no regrets that I came home and, and I've had a lot of great people, uh, such as Cloda, actually, and a lot of other people okay. that have been um, very supportive. So it, I, I'm not alone, you know, and uh, I think um, I have no regrets, you know, even with the pandemic and everything. It's, it's hard, but it's hard for everybody. Colleen, who called Lunchtime Live on Monday afternoon. Uh, and in the next couple of moments, Minister for Children, Roderick O'Gorman, will be joining us to discuss the Mother and Baby Home Report, which, of course, is the story of the day. I have to say it has stayed with me over the last 48, 72 hours, all the stories of survivors that are coming out. The sheer numbers are what are in my, my head, to be honest. All, every Irish woman was a victim, it says in the report, of systemic serious discrimination in this country. 56,000 women were put into these mother and baby homes. 57,000 children were living in these homes. A uh, hundred and something thousand people. That's the size of a large town. I mean, that, 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 that's completely peopled by people incarcerated in these institutions. Um, the highest number of women and children in institutions like this in anywhere in the world. A 40% mortality rate for children in these institutions and no one cried halt about that or even seemed to raise any eyebrows. And bear in mind, at the same time as these, we had the Magdalene laundries and at the same time as this, we had the industrial schools. And at the same time as this, we had the highest number of citizens in any population in the world incarcerated in mental institutions. I cannot and I do not want to take from the blame that needs to be laid squarely at the feet of state and church. I agree, but you can't blame the church for mental institutions. And I have to say, I I look back appalled thinking we were cruel as a society here in Ireland to our most vulnerable. We were cruel. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the quote that stuck in my head most was from Samantha Long, who who said she never described herself as a survivor until reading about the high mortality rates in that report. And then she said, I am a survivor. I actually uh, lived. And look, I, I think this report is it's it's hugely important. It shows how badly we behaved and primarily 
it, it needs to be used as a basis to get recompense for those grievous wrongs done to those women. Those women need justice. But I think we should also use this document to make sure we don't repeat some of those mistakes, some of those dreadful mistakes uh, of the past. And I do wonder, Kira, in 30 or 40 years' time, when we look back at, at this era, what are the things happening today that will appall us with the benefit of, ha- of hindsight? We don't have the cruelty that exists, that existed in society in the 40s and the 50s or, or even the 60s. But there are some marginalised, there are some uh, children being left behind, whether it's the, the, the boy we, whose mother we spoke to the other day uh, who is waiting three yeah. years for autism services, or the kids who, who go to sc- uh, certain schools in certain parts of our, our, our cities who won't ever have a chance uh, of going to college, or the child who's waiting months to get a hearing uh, a test, or even those in, in direct uh, provision. The, the hero of this report, uh, apart from Catherine Cor- Corliss, obviously, who, who brought this uh, into the public eye, the hero of this report is a woman called Anne Lister. She courageously, back in the f- 1940s and 1950s, uh, was an inspector who called out the wrongs that were happening in these r- r- reports. And what I'm wondering is, who is our Alice Lister of, of today? We're a better society today, thank God, but we're by no means a perfect society. Yeah, 53106 at a cost of 30 cents. Let us know your feelings this morning when you hear how we treated those women and those children. And also, as Shane says, who are our marginalised today? We'd love to hear from you on the programme. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. On Saturday, Down to Business visited the Rediscovery Centre in Ballymun. Now we've arrived in the two of the workshops here. This is the paint workshop. Sarah, do you mind telling me what's happening here? Okay, so here we have Dave Kavna, who's our paint technician and um, we call him Rainbow Dave because he really is magic with the paint colours. But Dave's here and he's recycling some paint, reusing some paint um, through Rediscover Paint. So he might take you through the actual process. Lovely to meet you, Dave. Now, uh, tell me what's happening here in your world and more importantly, tell our listeners how this whole paint recycling works or upcycling even. Basically, we go to the recycling centres. We have agreements with, with various council councils and we collect um, water-based paint only. And we check to see that it's okay, and then we would bring it back to the premises here, and we would basically mix colours with colours, and we sell around to the public then for one euro fifty a litre for normal colours and baseball colours. We sell it for two euro a litre. That sounds to me like a very competitive price. Uh, if I go to any of the big DIY stores, I'd be paying way more than that. Absolutely. Well, the, the whole idea of the upcycling, recycling, and being part of the circular economy is to reuse and to recycle and not to throw it out. So bring it to your recycling centres. We collect it from there, we bring it back here, and we will mix it up for any colour any color that you want. But yes, as you mentioned earlier on, it is a lot less expensive than the paint you'd buy in the shops, but we all the paint we use is good quality um, from all the leading brands, so we don't use that in inferior. Sounds absolutely fantastic. Now, uh, thanks for that, Dave. And then again, it's great work that you're doing. Uh, Mark is here surrounded by bicycles. I see chains, I see spokes, I see wheels. Uh, Mark, tell us a little bit about your world. Hiya. Um, what we do in Rediscover Cycling is much like uh, Dave and Paint, we uh, collect bikes from uh, the Estuary Recycling Centre and we also take donations of adult bikes as well. Uh, we strip them all down, give them a good clean, replace any parts that need to be replaced and make sure they're all in good working order. Uh, through that process, we also uh, train people looking to get into the bike industry. And then once the bikes are finished, we uh, put them up for sale in our eco store upstairs. 
How, what's involved in, in upcycling a bike typically? Uh, well, there are certainly some bikes that kind of are beyond repair uh, if they are too badly rusted. But the majority of ones, uh, we uh, can replace tires that have uh, gone dry and cracked, uh, chains that are worn out, cables that are rusty. Um, like usually a bike has been cycled up until a point. So it did work at some point. Yeah. They're, they're rarely beyond repair. So the majority of them. We, t- we strip them down, we change cables and bearings, uh, re-grease and re-oil. Um, it's, it's the small parts like brake pads and tyres we need to replace often, but not too yeah. much work overall. And then if you, when you resell a bike then, and I know there's a huge demand for bicycles out there at the moment. A lot of bicycles were coming in from China. That seemed to be a disruption around supply. So are you getting sort of high street prices for your bikes then when, they're, when you're selling them on? Kind of on average, uh, the, the market average for second-hand bikes is usually around half retail. Okay. Uh, we go a little bit below that as well to make sure it's, it's accessible for everyone in the community. So this bike here that I'm looking at, typically how much uh, you probably got it for nothing. Uh, you've obviously added value to it, so you've put parts in that have cost you. How much would you expect to get for it? Uh, th- this one in particular will be kind of, uh, this is a bit of a specialty bike. Uh, we've put a lot of new parts into it uh, to match what we got off of the the original donation. So that one will be kind of in our upper price range, maybe two or three hundred. But on average, they're usually between kind of eighty and one eighty. Fantastic. Your average kind of average uh, commuter or or mountain bike. Yeah.
the great Steve Earle, as heard on The Tom Dunn Show. Henry, tell me about the these uh, teenagers and, well, as you said, kids as young as 10 delivering drugs on BMXs and mountain bikes. Yeah, that's how it's done. It's done on a BMX, it's done on a mountain bike, or perhaps it's even done uh, by foot. Uh, and by using young people, it's easy or easier to get past the guards. I met these young people and I um, asked them various things and they explained why eight to 10 year olds are getting involved. I've seen uh, younger ones, all right. It's actually hard to believe um, that parents wouldn't be aware either of, you know, the potential that's going on, especially if it's out there and it is a suggestion that that's what's happening at the moment. And I think that people need to be very aware of where their kids are at all times, not just within COVID, but it is quite surprising that that's as young as they're going now. Just a board, I think. Oh, they're looking for money. It's just they never have enough money, kids. Do you want all the best things? So they're doing it for the best things, like runners and tracksuits. Yeah, yeah, that's what they are. Yeah, and then they're wearing them and the police thinks they're really bad drug pushers. And they're getting arrested. So it's a vicious circle. Only 10 years of age, though, 10. Oh, it's wrong. It's very wrong, now. But do parents should know where they are at 10 years of age as well? Yeah, you're better off not getting involved. We just don't want to get involved. No. Yeah, well, I think Blanchardstown has always had its its problem with, with, you know, drugs and and how they get to be in the wider community, you know. So um, it's a progression. It's now a positive progression, but it's it's going in that direction to keep that culture going. And you and your family, have you been touched at all by the curse of drugs? Uh, I was in my past, many, many years ago when I was a young person, which is a long time ago. <laughs> so I'm in recovery, so it hasn't. it doesn't touch my life in that way. Because meeting you, I would have never have known you were touched by drugs. Oh, so... So then I have to ask you, what do people who are touched by drugs look like? Well, you look like an upstanding member of society, which I'm sure you are. (laughs) That's that's recovery. That's recovery for you. That's what happens to people in recovery, you know, is they change their life. And what happened all those years ago? A a very difficult situation and a a decision had to be made. And thankfully, I made the right decision and I had the right support to continue on with that decision and change life. Yeah, some uh, mums and grandmums there in Blanchardstown, Henry. Is that right? Yeah, mums and grandmums and from all different backgrounds, including a former drug addict. And you heard me there, I suppose, jumping through hoops uh, to try and uh, get myself out of a hole that I found myself in because I said she didn't look like a a, a typical (laughs) drug addict. But here are young people explaining why um, there's 10-year-old drug runners out there in the Blanche. Majority of the times they've no pretty no father at home. Their mothers aren't working, so they don't have a lot of money and they're going around seeing these drug dealers with expensive jackets, Canada Goose clothes, uh, nice tracks you Canada Goose, so that's got like a, a goose inside the jacket, is it? No, it's just it's just the name the of the brand. brand. I think it's uh, they make like the ones with like the fully hoods and all, they make it about a thousand quid the jacket. These nice clothes, nice runners and all. The runners are expensive and stuff, so that's why uh, they need to try to find the money somewhere and they can't get a job. That's the only other way that they go go to is selling drugs, isn't it? The pair of Nike runners is 170 euro these days, but there's like there's other uh, designer runners like uh, Louis Vuitton runners and all, and they're about 1,000 euro as well. 1,000 euro for yeah, a pair, pair of runners. runners. Yes, you get Balenciaga runners and all for about 600 quid, and that's what all, all the kids are uh, going to get. New push bikes as well, and so they can't get that if they don't walk. Ten years of age, though, that is young. Yeah, yeah. Well, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be as common though. A, a ten year old would be more. Uh, 
you see like 12, 13. It's just kind of a mentality in the area at this stage. It is something that you just see so often and it's just not really going to disappear, I don't think. Like you, don't, you wouldn't know what to do to actually get rid of it. So that young, on a bicycle, just 10 years of age, you know, delivering a package, you'd see it. What would go through your mind? Would you just look the other way or what would you do? It's sad. It's sad, but there's not much you can do about it because it is just a mentality in the area as well. And you just have to And you kind of have way. to look the other way and just keep out of it. Yeah. Henry McKean there reporting from the Heart Childer with Kieran Cuddihy. On Sunday, Off the Ball explores the influence of sport on Ireland's transgender community. Here's Sarah Phillips and Maura Trasany-Kialik. Listening to that, I think my my first reaction actually is that's just very sad. There's a lot of people out there who really do go through those experiences and feel that way. That's I, I can't I don't have a better word, but sad. Yeah, and it is. But I mean, let's be very clear here. You know, I came out 30 years ago, nearly now. Um, I transitioned 16 years ago. And in reality, how bad is it today compared to back then? It's a long way. It's a huge, big difference. You know, we now have uh, legal gender recognition. We have support services. Um, We do have very supportive families. Uh, The norm is not to be uh, a situation where you come out to your family um, and that they are not supportive. It still happens that they are not, but it has improved dramatically and and it's getting better all the time. But the current discourse, as you said at the start of this piece around, you know, even what Graham Norton said, is that there is a part of society that is, we'll say, attacking back and very much from a uneducated point of view, they are not talking to trans people. They're not talking to the transgender community. Yeah, and let's be very clear, and I've said this before, there are some of our community who are not behaving, you know, very well, you know, in reaction to some of the things that are happening. But then when you're getting attacked day after day after day after day, some people will react. It's very hard not to react it's not it's very hard not to uh become aggressive it's very hard not to get annoyed so there will be those of us within our community who will behave badly in reaction to some of the things that are said but we have to create a narrative where people are allowed to be educated and people can express their views so that you can understand where trans people are coming from and that this is our identity and it has been the core of our identity from the very beginning it's not something we woke up with at the age of 18 or 40 or 29 or whatever and said oh this is who i am this is something that has been there from the very day we were born but it takes us time to realize what it is and it takes us time to understand it and it's crucial that other areas of society that that are available to all other individuals are open to us. And that's why sport is massively important. Sarah Phillips from Off the Ball. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Now, if you're the type of person who likes to know the ins and outs of everything, well, look no further than Show Me the Science, Luke O'Neill's new podcast for Newstalk.com. Here's a little taster on the science of diets. And of course, the, the big thing that this is about then is what we call fat shaming. 
And that's a more serious part of this where people feel ashamed and, you know, they're kind of picked on and bullied and, you know, you're eating too much and so on. Guess what? You shouldn't be doing fat shaming because a big part of this is about genetics, like many things are. And there are different genetics and different people of different genes that predispose them to being overweight or obese. And more and more genes are being identified. Now, the number is staggering. And again, this is very recent research. So it's tremendous, the amount of effort that's gone into it. And of course, the reason is, as I say, the, the weight issue is an important one for health. 70 to 80% of obesity is down to your genetics. It's not about you eating too much food. So whatever those genetic differences are, they're promoting you to be overweight and obese. So it's kind of a medical issue, I guess, in many ways. And we must remind people of that. And and fat shaming ignores that. And the famous story recently was James Corden on The Late Late Show in America. He was fat shamed by a guy called Bill Maher. Being fat isn't a birth defect. Nobody comes out of the womb needing to buy two seats on the airplane. (laughs) We have gone to this weird place where fat is good. It's pointing out that fat is unhealthy. That's what's bad. Fat shaming doesn't need to end. Needs to make a comeback. And James Corden spoke out against this. Thanks for that, Bill. (laughs) So I'm sat at home and I'm watching this and all I could think, I I was watching, I was like, oh man, somebody needs to say something about this. If only there was someone with a platform who knew what it was actually like to be overweight. And then I realised, ah, that'll be me. (laughs) We're not all as lucky as Bill Maher, you know? We don't all have a sense of superiority that burns 35,000 calories a day. (laughs) But the truth is, you're working against your own cause. It's proven that fat shaming only does one thing, it makes people feel ashamed. And shame leads to depression, anxiety, and self-destructive behaviour. Self-destructive behaviour like overeating. And as a result of that, a group of experts who work on obesity wrote a really important piece in one of the scientific journals saying, stop fat shaming, it's disgraceful. So we must keep this in mind. It doesn't help anybody and certainly doesn't help people lose weight either. So these kind of my more serious elements must be in our minds as well when we talk about this topic. Now, if it's genetic, let's look at some of the genes because, of course, we'd love to uh, understand those in, in, in more and more detail. And an Irish scientist called Stephen O'Reilly gets the credit for really being the first to find a genetic link to obesity. And the gene is called leptin. And he found a family, or a family came to him, he's a medic in Cambridge, who were overweight and obese. And he discovered they had a a mutation in the leptin gene. Now, what does leptin do? After a meal, your body makes leptin and it stops you eating. These people had defective leptin, so they ate too much. And it was as simple as that. And if he gave them leptin, they lost weight. Now, there you have a great piece of science. It's not about you saying, oh, I fancy another cheeseburger, is it? It's the leptin levels in your body. And if it's defective, you eat probably too many cheeseburgers. In other words, it's not about your will or your power. It was down to a hormone called leptin. And that was different in these people. Now, from that moment on, more and more genes are found. And Stephen gets huge credit because he was the first to sort of say, look, there's a very clear genetic link here. Many, many genes, at least 50 genes, variants in them, will predispose you to obesity. And they've got very difficult names, PCSK1, PPAR gamma. All of these have been shown when they're different to link into obesity. So again, the genetic basis for this is really, really important. From Show Me the Science with Luke O'Neill. And of course, you can catch Luke's latest podcast every Thursday morning on youthstalk.com. 
was it that type of experience and, and was it being greeted with that type of thing that, that began that process of, of denial, you know, before you turned 25 and, and reversed all of this? Yeah. But when you started to kind of say to people, oh, no, I'm not a traveller or I'm a settled traveller or you tried to kind of dilute your, your own heritage. Like, what, what were the, the incidents that, that, that spurred that on, that precipitated it? Like, you know, you go to a nightclub and... Like my father was born and murdered in Kilkenny and I used to say I was from Kilkenny uh, because I'd be stopped and like, where are you from? And if I said I was from Valley Farmers, straight away I was stopped because of my accent, you know. And only recently I took a case against a, a pub in uh, Dublin and I remember I was uh, six months pregnant, Dan Billy, and a judge said to me, you, didn't, you don't look like a traveller, so therefore this case is thrown out. And there, like what I'm, what I was trying to explain to the judge is not about your even your image, you know. And even when you're even trying to challenge the system, it does it disheartens you, you know. Growing up as as a young woman, eighteen, nineteen, I went to nightclubs. I, you know, used to go out, and you'd even even now today, as a thirty-one-year-old woman, you still feel rejected, you know. Like sometimes, like I remember even going back like the last time we went out with my husband and our friends here in Donegal, um, me just feeling, oh God, what have I asked questions? And and that lives with you, you know? But it, unfortunately, it is about having that. And I'm very lucky, Karen, um, that I found that strength to to uh, be able to to deal with that and feel the rejection, but still like feel the fear, but do it anyway kind of stuff, you know? And it, it, yes, nightclubs, relationships, uh, shops, all those little triggers as, as, as a young person, um, you know, it makes you do make you feel uh, lower within your self-esteem. It makes you feel you, you don't love yourself as a person I, I I think and that there is because of uh, how how you feel with the prejudice to discrimination that you see all of the time you know and I remember one time actually being um refused in Valley Farmers and my friends from uh, wider Valley Farmers that I met in a youth farm at the age of 18 and my friends would have just walked out and left the, uh, the pub and we dealt with it the next day, you know, and mm. I've never had a problem in Valley Farm in itself as such because I would have been known for being an activist and taking no, um, no um, nonsense, if you want. But again, you know, it's very tough even when you we even when you even want to even challenge these situations because it's a, uh, it's, it's, um, usually men that will say to you, men, white settled men that will say to you, uh, you've no case or the guard, the guardie invest in the guardie. And like, and why I'm saying the guardie invest in the guardie, because I want to remember an experience on Labry Park, mm. actually, and I'm thinking of it now. I remember um, a guard uh, putting his uh, face, his head out through and just leaning on the, on the window and saying his pack of scummy knackers. And this was um, uh, December of 2017. I went down to Bally Farm uh, Garda Station to report a hate crime. And there were no way that I could report a, a hate crime. So obviously the case went to uh, GSOC and, you know, the case again was thrown out. You know, there were no evidence of, of a hate crime. It was just, they're all very disheartening moments, but they make you yeah. come back 
even stronger and that's why but, I'm here um, yeah. and got to but, where I am today because of challenging but, the system if you want. What an impressive woman, Senator Eileen Flynn from the Heart Childer with Kieran Cuddihy. On Sunday, Talking History took us on an exotic trip to Istanbul. Here's Patrick Gagan and Bethany Hughes. Bethany, I might begin with you and I suppose pose one of these almost impossible to answer questions. Is Istanbul the world's greatest city? Well, it has indeed been called the greatest city on earth. It's also been called names like the world's desire, the queen of cities, the threshold. And, and I, I know we're supposed to be very neutral as historians, but I will stick my neck out. And I think it does deserve a lot of these titles, um, not just because of its extraordinary wealth of architecture and culture and art, not just because it's arguably one of the oldest uh, founded cities in the whole of Europe. It stretches right the way back. It has this prehistory that, that I think we'll be talking about tonight, um, and not just because it's incredibly relevant as well politically today, but I think because it's a city that teaches us what it takes to make a city and how, as a species, we can live together um, across time and uh, across continents. So I think, yeah, you know, I think we should all be interested in Istanbul. And as you say in your introduction, as soon as we're allowed to travel again, we should all go there and celebrate the city. So precisely because we can't travel there at the moment, how would you describe it for our listeners who, like myself, would love to be able to visit it but haven't been able to? Oh, you know, well, it's a huge, huge modern metropolis today. It spans about 100 miles. I tell you what I think um, you need to remember when you think about Istanbul is that a city where water is incredibly important. It, is, it was rather beautifully described as a diamond that sits between um, emeralds and sapphires. And the sapphires, of course, are the Bosphorus and, and the waters all around. So it's an incredibly dynamic city. It's a city that has kind of brio and verve and vitality. Um, and I think actually the waterways around it uh, really help us remember that it's a city that people from, from all points of the compass have come to visit and have settled and have fought over. And although famously it's described as the city that bridges east and west, first of all, it's far more than just a bridge. It's a destination in itself. But, but as important and really critically important, it's a city that joins north and south. So if you think if you travel up that, that incredible water the Bosphorus. Above it, you have the Black Sea, and then beyond that, Russia. If you travel south uh, through the Bosphorus, then down through the Hellespont and across the Mediterranean, the Libyan Sea, you come to Africa. So it's a real centrifugal point um, for all those different cultures and kinds of interest. Some gorgeous vistas there from Talking History with Patrick Gagan. And of course, you can tune into Patrick every Sunday evening from seven to late. OK, I'm going to leave you with now the world's funniest joke. Here's Sean Moncrief and psychologist Richard Wiseman. Have a great weekend. Well, do you, as a psychologist, are there people, and, and I mean this generally, unfortunate people in this world who actually don't have a sense of humour? You know, I've met... Well, quite a few of them, and I've tried to tell jokes at parties. Um, it's, uh, it's surprisingly a large number of them around. Yeah. I, I think that there are <laughs> there are there are some people who just kind of don't enjoy laughing very much, and and don't enjoy finding the funny side of, of life. Um, as I say, the unfortunate thing is that, is that humour is a very good way of dealing with stress. If you can find the the, the funny in in situations, it's it's good. I think most people though. 
when you're at 90, 95 percent of people rank, you know, a good sense of humor up there as a desirable trait and, and one they say they have. But, yeah, there are people out there for whom laughter is, is not a big part of their day. Gosh, that's kind of sad, I think. Uh, now, the, the length of a joke, it, it turns out from your research, is important. 103 words. <laughs> that was the average. That yeah. was the average. Um, so I think the one, my favorite joke that conformed to that, actually, was the dog uh, going in to send a telegram, which, which shows you how old this joke is, actually. Mm. It goes in to send a telegram, and the telegram is uh, woof, 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 woof. And the, the person behind the counter says, you know, for the same money, you could send an extra woof. And the dog says, don't be stupid. That wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> now, that joke uh, came in ex- exactly uh, the, the right kind of length for it. And other people sent in different versions, which were either shorter or longer, but they weren't rated as funny as one that kind of hit that kind of magical level of brevity. Yeah, you'd have to kind of, how many woofs you'd need in the first, if it was too exactly. many woofs, you'd get a bit bored with that, really. It's, uh, it's the same as in life. You can overwoof that joke. Yes, very you can. Yes. Now, the, 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 if you like the winning joke, or, or the joke at least that, that most people voted for, and confort, this joke is 102 words long, so we're going to time mm. you. Uh, we will be counting. <laughs> uh, was, uh, was this kind of conformed to all the things you were talking about? So, uh, oh, Right, so uh, Richard, no pressure. Off no. you go. We're the world's funniest joke. Um, I have to say, I don't like this joke. I've told this joke for over a decade. I don't like it. But here we go. Mm. It's two hunters in the woods. And one suddenly sort of clutches their, their heart and falls down. They're laying there on the ground. And the other hunter um, panics. He whips out his mobile phone. He calls emergency services. Said, my friend is laying there motionless on the ground. And the emergency services say, look, don't panic. First of all, we just have to make certain he's dead. And then they hear a pause and a gunshot and the hunter comes back on the line and says, OK, I've done that. Now what? <laughs> That's a great so, joke. <laughs> really? <laughs> You're probably just sick like, of telling it, Richard. That's... I have told that joke so many times. Uh, so, and it's an easy joke to mess up as well. That's the worst thing about it. You have yeah. to get one word wrong. And you mess it up. But um, yes, that was voted. It's the world's funniest joke. And you can see, you know, it's alleviating stress and it's laughing at someone else's idiocy. And it's got the surprise elements. So they are. They are all, all in there, all those elements. In case you missed it. With Susan Cahill. A look back at the week on News Talk.